You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson with Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am here with my amazing, just, I I, I just am so happy I have you guys co-hosts. I mean, y'all are just amazing. Um, Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Carrie Vedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. So we are almost at our hundredth episode. It's going to be pretty darn soon. And it may be this one by the time it gets aired. Very exciting stuff, but it'll happen right around the new year. Wow. I can't believe it. Time goes by. So, you know, we were so focused on 2020 what a year it was. And then 2021, I don't know about you guys, but it's just like blown by. Yeah. It's like the year everybody forgot. Yeah, absolutely. Although I don't know that there was a whole lot that was like truly amazing that happened in 2021. So it might be okay that it was just a a year that existed rather than a year that really was anything. (laughs) Are y'all New Year's resolution fans or what do y'all do for the new year? Not so much. I don't really make resolutions. You know, I guess a lot of people make weight loss. I mean, I think that's probably one of the number one things is to lose weight. And I don't necessarily feel like I need to lose weight, but I I guess sort of my new year's resolution to myself kind of is as long as I'm healthy and able to work out. And I, you know, really, I really try and exercise three times a week, come rain or shine or whatever, even if I'm like on vacation, I really try and do that. And that's just sort of a, I guess you could say a resolution for me the whole year. I really try and do that no matter what. Uh, We're not huge New Year's people. Like New Year's Eve is never a big thing. If I'm in bed by nine, I'm generally pretty happy. You mean, so you don't even stay up to see the ball fall? Now, at least I do that. She's on the West Coast. She doesn't have to stay up till nine. She just goes to bed at nine. Just because it's West Coast, it's still midnight for her. I mean, I do Central Time when the ball falls, not Eastern time. In the same way that you can subscribe to the theory, it's five o'clock somewhere. It's midnight somewhere. <laughs> it's, midnight. it's midnight somewhere. So when you go to bed, it's it's midnight somewhere is what you're saying? Pretty much. And that's <laughs> like, I am not, I know I live in Las Vegas. I know that the strip is a big deal on New Year's Eve. It's like the one of maybe two times a year when they will shut it down and people are in the street and they do fireworks and all the concerts and everybody's real glitzed up and blah, blah, blah. That is not my scene. Like I am, uh, I am a homebody and I'm not a, a big casino person. And so like, I don't feel compelled to stay up because if I'm living my life right, it's the same as every other night. Now that said, invariably, I will say, oh yeah, I'm going to lose X number of pounds and then fall off the, you know, that cliff by January. But this year, like I started like, okay, it's time. I need to get serious about my health and I need to do X, Y, and Z. And so I started that mid-year and am on that track. So you've done really well too. You've done a great job. 
I don't want to like share any of your secrets that you don't want to share, but you've done really well. <laughs> it's uh, I have I fell off right around Thanksgiving. Well, like, but who doesn't fall off around Thanksgiving? You just got to jump right back in and start doing it again. So, yeah, I mean, we don't do a whole lot of, of New Year's resolutions. Like I'm listening to a whole lot of TED Talks now that are all geared towards how do you how do you live the life that you want to live rather than just living the life you are living. But that's not geared towards New Year's in particular. It's just a kind of the constant reevaluation of, am I where I need to be? Am I doing where I am best? Like, am I being the person I am best served to be? I like that. I like that too. I'm not a big New Year's resolution person either. I think I did when I was like younger and a kid and when it was, I I don't know, but I'm such a goal oriented person that I have goals that I'm always working towards and you know, I'm a strategic thinker. So I'm like, how do I get from point A to point Z in the most efficient, you know, system possible and, and that type of thing. And I'm like, it's just part of living life instead of like, oh, once a year, I need to decide on a goal. Although I will say, I have one thing to add is Carrie was talking, I sort of had a a PTSD moment. I think I might've told you guys this, but so in 2020, when it was about to be 2021, we actually did have a few people over our house, a few people from out of town. We were cooking. We cooked dinner kind of late because we were going to wait and watch it on TV when the ball fell and all that. And so at literally at 930 Central Time, when you said when you're talking about different time zones, it made me think about 930 Central Time, which is where I am. I was looking at my phone and I saw that I'd gotten an email from the American College of OBGYN. And so I started reading it and it says, Dr. Eblen, it looks like you failed to complete four articles for your CMA. Oh, no. (laughs) And so I'm like, well, I mean, this is it's like having a bad dream. You know, basically, it's 930 Central Standard Time. And I have like an hour and a half to read four articles. And each article has like four questions. So like 16 questions I have to do before the ball falls. So I have all these people at my house. I'm like, excuse me, I'm going to be tied up for a minute. And so I like go in my study and I'm like starting to tie. And it's, you know, when you're under that kind of pressure, it's hard to read the paper. And I mean, some of those papers are pretty challenging. They're very dense. And I was trying to pick the ones that I thought were the easiest. And literally, because I wasn't sure exactly when, how much time I had, if it truly was central time or Eastern time, by the time it was all said and done, it came down to like the last paper. I had like four questions and it was like two minutes before midnight. Oh and so I just like guessed oh, and I, no. I got I got three of the four right. But and then I hit the enter button. So I got it done. But I was like, I was like shaking at the end. <laughs> so somehow and I'm I'm usually a very proactive person. That is so opposite of my nature. But it was 2020, you know, and there are a lot of other things going on. And for some reason, I thought I'd completed in October, which I usually do, but I hadn't. And so I take that back. My New Year's resolution this year, which I've already completed, is to complete all of the ACOG 30 articles that we have to do in a year's time and get all my questions completed. And I'm pretty sure it's done, but I'm going to double check one more time before the end of December, just to be certain. (laughs) I just finished mine last week, so. (laughs) Uh I did mine uh, like last week, two weeks ago, and was very, very pleased that they were all done well in advance of the deadline. My best piece of advice is don't wait until an hour and a half before midnight on December 31st to complete them. (laughs) Please check your email. 
like you could have reasonably not checked your email, missed it. And absolutely. And they, they had emailed me that morning, but you would have, you know, it's my fault, but you would have thought that they would have emailed me because it technically is due, I think the second week in December or something. Yeah. You would have thought they would have emailed me before then. But anyway, I was just glad I got it done. And I, you know, I didn't know what would happen if I didn't get it done. I don't think they'd make me lose my license. They'd probably give me a little bit of, you know, grace or something, but I didn't want to chance it. So I got it done. <laughs> Gosh, last thing I'd want to have to do is like sit through like a written exam again. Oh, <laughs> oh my yeah. goodness. Because uh, we've all had to do that at least once, right? Because the very first time they started seeing me, we had to do it at least once. And now, fortunately, if you maintain a certain average, you don't have to do these tests. You don't have to do a written test. You just have to com- complete these articles. So yeah, I would not would not have wanted to do a written test. You're right. All right. So we're going to move on to some questions. So our first question is going to be a regular question that we answer. And our second question is actually the inspiration for our podcast today. So our first question is, hello, I'm 36 years old and have a balanced translocation. I have one son from a natural pregnancy and have had three IVF cycles. My first IVF cycle and transfer was successful. And I was blessed with my second son, who's two and a half years old. I have since had three failed embryo transfers. We would love to have another child. However, my concern and constant question that I can't get answers to is if IVF puts you at any higher risk for breast cancer or any other reproductive cancers. I would keep going with IVF to pursue my dream of another child if I knew the cancer risk was low. After my most recent transfer this past October, a mass was found in my left breast. Mammo and ultrasound diagnosed as dense breast tissue, which I know can increase one's risk of breast cancer. So I'm torn on my next move and I'm really hoping for some guidance. Love your show. Thank you. So good question about whether or not IVF increases risk of reproductive cancers. One thing to think about whenever you consider that question is what is your baseline risk of any reproductive cancer? And what we have found is that women who have fertility issues oftentimes have an increased baseline risk for both of those. And it's important to know that because when you're looking at any comparison study, you got to make sure that you're comparing the right things. And so comparing someone with infertility to someone who doesn't have infertility and knowing what their breast cancer risk or ovarian cancer risk is, is different than comparing someone who does have infertility uh, and has treatment to someone who does have infertility, but does not have treatment. And so that's really the, the baseline group that you want. And the reason I say that is because for example, polycystic ovarian syndrome, those women don't tend to ovulate. If they do, it's not as frequently. They tend to have a thicker lining buildup that they are not shedding each month. And so they have a baseline higher risk for endometrial cancer. Um, If their, their PCOS goes unchecked, if they don't have some type of progesterone influence on the uterus to protect their uterus. And so in that sense, yes, somebody with infertility who has PCOS, who goes through a bunch of treatment does have a higher risk of endometrial cancer, but it's not a risk from the treatment. It's a risk from their underlying condition. And so that's an important thing to know. And that's part of the reason why we get real bent out of shape when somebody with PCOS comes to us and said, oh, I haven't had a period for a year. And my, you know, my other doctor told me that that was fine. I'm like, well, no, it's really not fine. You've got a higher risk of a problem. If you don't get a period from taking a birth control continuously, that's one thing. And that's more okay than if you don't have one because you're not taking any meds and you just don't get periods. And so that's one of the reproductive risks um, is endometrial cancer. We do see it higher in certain subgroups. In general, there's not an increased risk from going through fertility treatment as long as you are getting routine cycles. 
With breast cancer, there is a slightly higher risk if you're over 35, I believe, when you have your first child. You know, I personally was in that category, or 35 or older. I was in that category two times over. You know, I think, yeah, there's a little bit of an increased risk, but I think for the most part, it's not a real high risk. You know, for me, it certainly did not dissuade me from having children, um, you know, past the age of 35. I think to Carrie's point, too, you know, you had mentioned, I think, that you had I think you said um, fibrocystic breast disease, or they were worried about lumps in your breast. There's a slightly higher risk, I believe, for women who have fibrocystic breast disease, and probably is more related just to the fact that it's really hard to see what's normal breast tissue for you versus what's abnormal. It's it's almost like it's hard to find the forest for the trees because there's a lot of little lumps in there potentially. And so, you know, I, I think it's certainly something to consider. And I, I actually didn't hear what age our listener was. What what age? How old was she, Susan? Thirty six. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, just like everything in life, you have to look at risk and benefits. But for me personally, I thought the risk was low enough for me. I mean, I get regular mammograms, I get regular checkups that it didn't dissuade me from having my children. So you know, I think it's an individual decision for you and your doctor to make. And I do think your doctor needs to evaluate all your potential risk for breast cancer. You know, if you had a mom with breast cancer or something, that that's a different situation. But I think just baseline what you told us, I, for me personally, I, it wouldn't dissuade me from wanting to have another baby. Right. And another thing to think about is pregnancy and potentially breastfeeding after pregnancy is protective against both breast cancer as well as ovarian cancer. Okay. So that's one thing to kind of weigh. And one thing that I think is important is I would venture to say that this person lives in a non-mandated state. I think all of us are practicing in non-mandated states. What that means is there are certain states that fertility coverage is mandated as part of insurance policies. And if you look at how many cycles of IVF individuals quote, tend to go through, if you're looking at people in mandated states, it's really a lot less unusual for somebody to go through four or six IVF cycles because they're paid for. Whereas where we live, unless you are in potentially, you know, a 25% group of people who do have coverage through your employer, most of those people are paying for those cycles out of pocket. I mean, quite honestly, most households aren't able or wanting to spend the amount of money to go through four to six IVF cycles. And so I know that sometimes we're like, ooh, you know, we've we've done three IVF cycles. Is it really a good idea to do another cycle? And I think some of that is kind of, I mean, I almost want to say it's culturally mediated because of what we're used to seeing. Whereas, you know, if I was up in you know, New Jersey, (laughs) um, I probably wouldn't bat an eye at somebody having their fourth IVF cycle. You know, once you get past six, I think that's when most reproductive endocrinologists start being like, yeah, maybe we, maybe this might not be a good idea, but I think probably up to six under most situations would be probably within a relatively reasonable realm of safety. Yeah, when you look at the egg donor data, more than six cycles is typically what's not recommended, but there's really no data that comes out behind it. It's just, uh, well, this is what we think. And I think that's <laughs> probably more based on a comfort and access level than it is on actual science and data. That's a good question. I like that one. That's a good question. 
Now to our question that is our theme for today. Can you do an episode on endometriosis and particularly adenomyosis? How is it diagnosed? What are the stages? How do you determine how bad? Effects on IVF treatment, chances of success, when to consider a surrogate versus continuing to try FETs after FET failure? That's a good question. Lots of layers. It is. So Carrie, what is it really sounds like this person's wanting to know more information on adenomyosis, which isn't something we specifically talked about before. We've talked about in passing, but not as its own episode. What is adenomyosis? So adenomyosis is cells that have gone rogue and they have gone off the map and they have taken a trip to places that they should not be. And they have uh, set up shop, built a house, made a home and implanted to stay. And so what that means is that when you look at the uterus, the uterus is not just one type of cells. It's a couple of different types of cells. And you can really break the uterus into an endometrium layer and a myometrium layer. And the endometrium layer is endocrinologically, uh, that's a mouthful, um, (laughs) receptive and responsive. And so it's a very different cell type than the myometrium, which is based off of all muscle cells. And so what happens is that the endometrium thickens up and then thins down each month when it thickens up in order to respond to a potential pregnancy. And then if there's no pregnancy, it thins down, you get your menstrual bleeding. And then the next month it starts over again. Well, it's sloughed off every month, right? Slips off, sloughs off all of the work. <laughs> um, but clearly I'm having difficulties with today, but <laughs> she hasn't been drinking. Honestly, no, we don't see any alcohol anywhere. <laughs> no, there's no alcohol. Um, notice how my camera is focused on this one very narrow area. (laughs) But the myometrial layer is these thick bands of muscle. And what we think happens with adenomyosis is that there's some disruption in the barrier between the two. And there's some theories that it happens when the human being is being made and that those cells migrate and they just don't make it to where they need to be. And they take an early pit stop and they set up shop in the myometrium. Um, There's other theories that damage along the way, whether that is from some type of uterine procedure or surgery um, can push endometrial cells deeper into the myometrium. You know, it could be both. But essentially, what happens is that those endometrial hormonally responsive cells get into the middle of the muscle layer where they're still hormonally responsive, meaning they can still grow, bleed, respond to those hormones. Yet there's really no place for that. Uh, whether it's blood or cells that should be sloughing off, there's really no place for it to go. And so it remains trapped within the myometrium and it can cause pain, discomfort, an enlarged uterus. It can create fertility problems. And so that's really kind of what adenomyosis is. It's a displacement of the cells of the endometrium in the muscular layer of the uterus. So Abby, how do we diagnose adenomyosis? Well, you know, sometimes when we're looking at patients with vaginal probe ultrasound, sometimes we'll see these little pockets that almost look like pockets of blood kind of in the myometrium, the muscular part of the uterus. And so that kind of tips you off that something may be going on there. The other thing is, you know, sometimes when people have a lot of pain and a lot of irregular bleeding, sometimes it can be linked with that. So if you see both of those two things together, you go, hmm, there's a reasonable chance they have adenomyosis. But I always kind of joke and say that adenomyosis, the diagnosis of adenomyosis is made by a pathologist in a laboratory because 
there's no way for us to biopsy and really tell if what we're seeing really is adenomyosis. And it's not really until a woman who has a hysterectomy because of those symptoms it's not until the pathologist gets that uterus and slices it up that they can actually make the diagnosis that that's what's going on. So it's really tricky to diagnose. And, and sometimes it can even masquerade and look like a fibroid. And a fibroid is a tumor that we can actually go in and remove, whereas adenomyosis is not one that we really are not a type of tissue that we would try and go in and remove from the uterus as a general rule. So with endometriosis, we have a pretty official staging system that's been in existence for 20 plus years, I would say that was designed by the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. And it looks at whether we have implants in the ovaries or on the peritoneum, the kind of shiny surface on everything, or if it's just a little bit of stuff here and there. And we have this great staging system, but I would like to say that that staging system really has no ties to the amount of pain somebody has or the amount of infertility they have. So it's a way of describing things, but it really doesn't have a whole lot in prognosis with the exception of potentially what you may need to end up doing for fertility care. If people have the more advanced stages of endometriosis, they are much higher risk of needing things like IVF. So Carrie, is there anything like that for adenomyosis? There's really not a good staging system for adeno. I mean, it's it's more of a, well, do you think it's there? Are you fairly certain it's there? Uh, if you've been in surgically and thought you were taking out a fibroid and ended up with adeno instead, you may have a pathology diagnosis that confirms it's there. But it's really not quite as clear cut. Um, like Abby said, a transvaginal ultrasound can give you some hints. Sometimes getting an MRI will give you some hints. And it all depends on what your particular uterus looks like. But it's not a real easy thing to quantify in the same way that there is a numerical score that you can get for endometriosis that can quantify stage one, two, three, or four. No, it's more like, yeah, I, I, you probably have it, or I think you are very likely to have it as opposed to uh, you have X stage. So it sounds like it falls into definitely the art of medicine that we practice instead of necessarily the complete science. So Abby, when, when you have the general gestalt that your patient may have adenomyosis, how do you treat that patient versus someone that you're really not too concerned about that? Well, I mean, it's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. I think if somebody is not trying to get pregnant, if it was a general gynecology patient, a lot of times those patients will have really heavy bleeding. A lot of times they'll have really painful periods. So we would treat them similarly to anybody that has painful periods and start them on birth control pills and try and manage them hormonally because, you know, in theory, we don't know, but in theory, if the implants are kind of in the wall of the musculature and they're bleeding during your period and they, the blood can't get out, you could see where that would stretch the uterus and cause pain. And so in theory, if you can do some things to kind of suppress the endometrium, in theory, you can make it a little bit better for those patients. But unfortunately for an infertility patient, there's really not data to show that going in and cutting that out is going to make a difference. And from a surgical standpoint, it's really difficult to figure out. It would be really difficult to find where that area is because, again, it grows in the muscle of the uterus. And it's kind of like 
the princess and the pea, you know, the pea is like stuck somewhere in the middle of that, of all those covers. And it's hard to figure out, you know, even if you wanted to go take them, the adenomyosis out, it's hard to figure out where it is. Plus it's a big surgery. You cut into the uterus, you have to wait three months to get pregnant. And there's really no data that I'm aware of that says it really makes a significant difference if it's removed. So unfortunately, once we make that diagnosis, it's kind of one of those things where we make the diagnosis and then we kind of just try and ignore it and move on and get our patient pregnant as quickly as we can. So sometimes what we'll do is we'll put people on Lupron in preparation of it for an FET cycle, because that's really where ADNO makes the most impact is within the uterus. And can you get the lining prepped? Because I, I feel like sometimes with ADNO, patients have a harder time getting a thicker lining. And so you give them Lupron, you shut down any hormonal responsive tissue that happens to be sitting in the middle of the uterus muscular layer where it shouldn't be. And then, um, and then you go from there. But um, again, I don't know that there's a whole lot of data that really does fall within the art of ART. Yeah, and I will say I have had a patient when you said that who had really great success with Lupron, but it's kind of sporadic. Sometimes you have success and sometimes you don't. And so, but yeah, sometimes that can be helpful for sure, but it's kind of a short-term thing. It's kind of like if you have a fibroid, sometimes we'll treat it with Lupron to help shrink it down, but it's temporary. It's not usually not a permanent fix for most patients, but yeah, short-term it can be helpful. So when our listener is concerned about the success of her IVF cycle, the adenomyosis probably shouldn't have all that much to do with her egg retrieval. It has more to do with, are you able to get a pretty enough, thick enough lining to support a pregnancy for your embryo transfer? That sound fair? Yeah, that sounds fair. I agree. And her last part of her question was, when would you consider a surrogate versus trying to continue to do FETs? That's the art of medicine. That comes down to a lot of external factors. So financial is the biggest of them because while IVF is expensive, IVF with the surrogate is really freaking expensive. That's putting it mildly. <laughs> and involved and emotionally draining too. Yeah. I mean, people think, oh, I'll get a surrogate and this is going to be a lot easier. And for patients who need a surrogate, because there's no other alternative, it is a phenomenal way to build your family. But it is not easy. It takes easily over a year to even get started. That's assuming that you have embryos ready because surrogates are in high demand. They are hard to find. The medical screening is not straightforward. Like there's a huge amount that goes into it. And it is not a fast process, at least not when it's done right with all the proper screening beforehand. And so it's something where if you have a bunch of euploid embryos and you have tried a fair number of them and they just will not stick and you've tried a fair amount with your own uterus... Yes, you can absolutely go to a surrogate to help you out. I actually have a patient who's in that category right now. We have beautiful embryos made from donor egg, and she has a bad combo of fibroids and adeno. And so we're using a surrogate, but she's in her late 40s and she's like, I cannot afford to wait anymore. I need to build my family. Let's do this. And so I screened her surrogate last week, but it is, uh, it's a big involved option. And so a lot of that's going to depend on the conversation between you and your doctor, because there's, it is important to know going into surrogacy, what that involves and the control that you do have and the control that you don't have. And that extends to your doctor as well, because as much as we screen and we try and we work hard, life happens and so does biology. And so, so that is a more in-depth conversation to have with your personal doctor who knows all your circumstances, because they're going to be able to better steer you in the direction of yes, no, uh, or in between. 
Very good. It's a very interesting topic and it's definitely a place that we need. We need more information. We need more data. But as we've talked about before, if we wrote the book of everything we know about fertility and then wrote the book of things that we can not invasively test, that's just one of the ones that it's the hardest for us to get that information. And it really does unfortunately fall into the art and not necessarily the science of medicine. And in a lot of those times, especially when it comes to, you know, do I continue to use my uterus? Do I think about using a gestational carrier, those are big decisions. You know, they're big decisions, you know, socially, ethically, financially. I mean, it hits you at every level. And so this is one of those episodes where I'm very, very thankful for my colleagues who do research in these areas so that hopefully in the future, we'll have more data to give more helpful advice and find things that are more concrete that can help our patients. So to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We are also on Instagram and Facebook. So please hop on and leave us a like or a follow and just say hello. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We'd love to hear your questions and love to hear from you on Instagram and Facebook and on our website. As always, the podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you all soon. See you next week. Bye. Bye. We want to thank Ovation Fertility for sponsoring today's podcast. On the road to parenthood, many of our listeners find themselves in need of fertility testing, IVF, and other related services, such as egg donation, genetic testing, or gestational surrogacy. Ovation is a one-stop shop for services that many people may need as they go through fertility care. You can learn more about Ovation services for hopeful parents at ovationfertility.com.